0: All right, our scripture reading today is from Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 23. Joshua 8, 1 through 23. This is the word of God. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock, you shall take his plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to high. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. He commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. When they come out against us just as before, we shall f- flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay uh, between Bethel and Ai. To the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about five thousand men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley, And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward I, and I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out j- the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled into the wilderness Turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all, all Israel saw the ambush had captured the city. And that the smoke of the city went up. Then they turned and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out of the city uh, against them. So they were in the midst of Israel. Some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Zach. And thanks, Michael. Uh, So
1: I want to catch up a little bit on where we've been in in Joshua as we've been uh, walking through this book. So uh, a few weeks ago, we were in Joshua chapter six and we see God... Give Jericho to Israel and in the way this happened was kind of miraculous there is they were they were walking around the the walls of Jericho They did it seven times after their seventh lap They blow the trumpets and they shout and, and the walls come down. Most of you are familiar with this story uh, Then in chapter 7 uh, Israel is supposed to attack I Ai, AI whatever you want to call it, but the the people of Ai are, are, are small uh, And this, this should be an easy win for Israel uh, Joshua so, but they, they go in and, and they, they, they don't do well. They're defeated and they, and they end up fleeing. And so Joshua cries out to the Lord about it because he doesn't understand we're supposed to take out all these people here. And you've given us great victory over Jericho. And then on the second go at it, this is going terribly and we've, we've been forced to, to go away. But it's revealed that there's sin in the camp. Uh, there's an Israelite named uh, Achan and he took what was forbidden from, from Jericho uh, so they lost that battle to Ai because of Achan's sin. So in chapter eight, after the sin of Achan was dealt with, the Lord encouraged Joshua to not fear and to take the fighting men and to go again to battle after the people of, of, of Ai. And, and the Lord also gives them a battle plan. and And, and he tells them they're, they're basically gonna fake being defeated. Uh, and they're going to retreat. Uh, and then when the, the people get chased them out, that there are going to be others lying in ambush you are going to go into this city, uh, and that they're going to defeat them that way, and it works. And so it's interesting to note with these two different battles, with Jericho and with Ai, in, in the battle with Jericho, it was more of a miraculous defeat. Uh, but then with the people of Ai, it was, a, it was a more practical. So there was this kind of passive role for, for the Israelites to play. And then at another time, there was a more active role. For them to play. And so, anyway, so as we, and today, what I'm gonna do, I'm not gonna get real deep into Joshua 8. I'm gonna kinda of zoom out a bit to consider what's going on. And a couple of things I wanna consider uh, as, as we look at Joshua 8 and just what's been happening in the last few chapters in Joshua. One thing I wanna consider is the blessing uh, of obedience and the curse of disobedience that's, that's, that comes out here. And the other is how God uses means to accomplish his purpose, how God uses means, how, how God uses people to accomplish his purposes. So first, we're going to look at the blessing and the curse. All right, so again, Joshua 6, Israel obeyed God, and they were blessed in doing so. In Joshua 7, uh, Achan took what was forbidden, and we see that they were cursed for it. Then after Achan was punished, then they obeyed God again, and they were blessed with another victory. So it would be fair to say... That when Israel was obedient, good things happened. And when they were disobedient, bad things happened. And that cause and effect is exactly what you would expect to see happen if you read Deuteronomy 28. You don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 28, there's a there's a list of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And so, so this is the part of the old covenant. God said, if you do these things, if you obey me, good things will happen. And if you do these, and if you don't do these things, bad things will happen. So here's a question to consider. Should Christians expect this kind of cause and effect under the new covenant? The the old covenant, Deuteronomy 28, you do right, you'll be blessed, you do wrong, you'll be cursed. And is that what Christians should expect in the new covenant? That will be blessed by obedience and cursed with disobedience. Should we expect good things from God if we obey Him and bad things if we do not obey Him? Does the new covenant, the cross, and grace cancel out that system? Now, one thing that I want to be clear about the terms and conditions of Deuteronomy 28 no longer apply to us. That was a covenant that God made with Israel about that that time and place, what he was calling them to. And that is not a covenant that God made with the church. So those terms and conditions do not apply to us. But we also see clearly in the New Testament that the apostles did not teach that our obedience or disobedience was irrelevant because of the new covenant, the cross and grace. And that there are, in fact, effects to our obedience to God's word So for a person who looks at the Word of God and does what it says, he will be blessed in his doing. Now look, we're, we're all busy. We all have a lot going on. We all have a lot on our plate, things that are making us anxious or nervous or whatever. Uh, and we all have things that, that enter into our lives that interrupt our schedules. And we make adjustments because of those things. We make adjustments for those things because they're, they're important. We value them. So we, we make adjustments even when those adjustments are inconvenient. And that should be our experience with the Word of God, that we would make adjustments around what we see as the clear teaching of the Scriptures. We should rearrange our words that we use, uh, our attitudes, our actions, and sometimes our schedules to make them align more with what the Word of God teaches. And the promises that we get from God is that when we make those types of adjustments that come from what we see in the Word of God, that we will be blessed in our doing. But if we have an understanding of the new covenant of the gospel and grace that does not move us towards obedience, but instead being a little bit more laid back about what God says, then we've misunderstood misunderstood the work of grace in our lives. We've misunderstood the character of God, and we've misunderstood the word of God. And and sometimes people might come to understand the gospel and grace, and they feel a sense of relief because they think, ah, this is good. I, I no longer have to worry about God's rules. That, that stuff was, was weighing me down. But, but who said God's rules, God's law was not good and was not a blessing? Grace means that we're no longer condemned for our disobedience, but it does not mean that we won't suffer loss for our disobedience. For example, consider some of what the Proverbs say about parenting. In Proverbs 29, 17, we read this. Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And then in uh, 29, 15, just a couple of verses before, it says, The rod of reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So on one side, obeying God's word, there's rest and delight for parents and wisdom for the child. And then on the other side of disobedience, there's shame. Obedience will bring blessing, and disobedience will be like a curse. Consider also Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 9, says this: Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So we will reap what we sow. The new covenant, the gospel, and grace does not erase the fact that we will reap what we sow. Eugene Peterson, who wrote uh, the Message Bible, it's kind of a paraphrase of the Bible. Uh, He he paraphrased that that, uh, passage in Galatians like this. He says, what a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. So for the person who loves the gospel of grace, but has mistakenly, understood that to mean they no longer need to concern themselves with obeying God's Word, then they're going to find a lot more weeds in their life than blessings. And perhaps they'll even experience more shame than peace. Now, with that said, I want to give a little bit of nuance to what I've just said. Because what, what, I, what I've basically communicated is that there's blessing, uh, that, that when, when, if, if you obey God, there's blessing. Good things happen. If you do not obey God then bad things happen. And and, and I don't want to take back what I've said, um, but I do want to add a couple things to to lay that idea next to in Scripture. First, consider Job. He is a man who suffered greatly. And why did he suffer? Well, one reason that you could give uh, for why Job suffered so much was because that he was, in fact, righteous. And so Job's suffering had nothing to do with personal sin in his life. And, and actually, he had friends that were kind of gathering him around them. And they were saying, like, look, man, you're suffering because of sin. Just confess it and repent. And Job was just like, no, I, there's no sin that I need to repent. There, there's nothing. He, he was not aware of anything that he had done. He was, of course, a sinner. But he knew that his suffering was not a one-to-one relation because of a sin And throughout the book of Job, we see in the beginning, in the end, that was not the case. And those friends that were telling Job, like, look, you're suffering because of your sin. They were condemned at the end of the book by God. So we need to be careful to not have some kind of overly simplistic view of suffering and sin. They can certainly be related. I mean, you can sin and make a real mess of your life. But we shouldn't assume that whenever there's some kind of suffering that it's coming from our sin. We shouldn't assume it the way Job's friends did. Secondly, for Christians, suffering, trials, unavoidable. Uh, We read about Paul in Acts 14, that he went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations is what Christians have in store for them and so it would not be right or good for you to assume before the fact that any difficulty I have in my life is there because of my sin. That is a direct result of that. James one two says, uh, "Counted all joy when we face trials." Again, the assumption is trials and sufferings will happen. So suffering and trials for Christians is normative. Now, also, it should be noted that if you approach your life and you're aiming to to get to capture God's blessings and, and avoid the, the bad things, uh, then, then that's going to be a little bit off too. Whenever we're trying to pursue God's blessing in our life, if that becomes the primary thing, that, that we're, we're going to be a bit off, right? So what we should do is pursue God and not use God as a means to an end. And look, this can be tricky. A lot of times we don't even know where we're doing it. There's a huge difference, even though it's hard to tell, between pursuing God and using God to an end. Like You have some kind of image of the good life in your mind, and so you're going to use God to get there. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, "Put put first things first, and second things are thrown in. Put second things first, and you lose both first and second things. Now, there's, there's one other thing I want to bring out of our, our, of our passage today and the, the, this whole, the last few chapters of Joshua, um, and it's it the way that God chose to work. And in this passage in particular, I want to talk about how God uses means. That might be a weird way to put it, but follow me here. So my second point is that God uses means. So Joshua 6, God did something miraculous in defeating Jericho. They walked around the wall seven times. The wall miraculously fell down. Uh, and they had victory. And then God gives different instructions this time when they're going back to the people of Ai. It's more practical than miraculous. God basically tells them they should go to battle, send a smaller group, they should retreat. And when they retreat, the the people of Ai are going to follow them out, empty the city. When they empty the city, you have people in ambush, they're going to fall after them. You know, one thing I think about is um, uh, Braveheart. If you've seen Braveheart, there's that scene where that happens. But anyway, never mind. But anyway, so, so that was the plan. It was really practical. And so in this, we learn that God sometimes works in miraculous ways. And sometimes he works in very practical ways. Humanly speaking, the battle plan for Jericho was not a good plan. But God did something miraculous. And looking at what happened in Joshua 8 with the battle plan, it doesn't seem very spiritual. It just seems like a really good strategic plan that kind of manipulates what the people of I were seeing. So so what do we learn from this? That God sometimes works in miraculous ways, and he sometimes works in very practical ways. Or to put it in another way, God uses means. And we need to keep both of these realities in mind. And if we don't, we'll, we'll probably drift towards one of two errors. One era is that we'll be super spiritual and, and we'll, we'll, we'll trust God, put no hope in man, wait on God to do the miraculous, wait on God to bring down the walls and depart the Red Seas. But sometimes these type of people can be like me, while meaning well, can use confidence in God to justify a lack of effort, a lack of planning or lack of hard work. And their confidence could be laziness or just fear of taking risk. Now, on the other side, you have the more practical, more pragmatic. They feel like everything's up to them. They might have godly goals, uh, but they act and plan as if there is no God and as if what happens is a result of their work, effort, plans, or their ability to make the right decisions. And we would do better to hold both those things in tension, that we would work hard, plan, give real effort towards whatever God has called us to do, whether it's school, work, family, ministry, finances, whatever. But as we work hard, we should know that it is God who is ultimately in control. That results are the things that belong to God. They don't belong to us. So our hope must be in Him, not our efforts. As Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the the Lord our God. But we need not take that as a reason to give less effort or to not work hard and be diligent in planning. Proverbs 6 says, Go to the end, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. So, a faithful Christian is a hard worker who trusts God with the results. God uses work. He uses our efforts. He uses our planning and our strategizing. And a faithful Christian works hard because they know God is working. William Carey, uh, known sometimes as the father of modern missions. He wrote a little book with this catchy title, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. No doubt, that was a bestseller, right? Well, so anyway, this whole idea, he wrote this responding to some who were trusting in God's sovereignty to a fault. Clay Wald actually spoke on this in one of our Wednesday night meetings. And there there were some that were making the argument that the need for overseas missionaries uh, was not needed. And that was a thing that, that God was doing. And so anyway, he was at one meeting and he was talking about the, the need for Christians to be overseas missionaries. And an old minister stood up during the meeting. He said, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. In other words, he was saying, look, God's going to take care of conversions. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need people to do what he's going to do. And that's, that's kind of half right. God will take care of it. The part where he was wrong, this old minister, was that he chooses to use means. He uses people, regular folks like you and me. And, and in this book, William Carey said this. He said, As our blessed Lord has required us to pray that his kingdom may come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it becomes us not only to express our desires of that event by the word, but to use every lawful method to spread the knowledge of his name. So the old minister said that God would take care of the conversion of the heathen, and William Carey said that we should use every lawful method towards that end. William Carey was right. The old minister was wrong. Faithful Christians should be hard workers. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15:10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So Paul said God's grace towards him was not in vain. And so why was the the grace of God not in vain towards Paul? He said because he worked really hard. And so if you love the gospel of grace... And if you want that grace to have, for its effect to be full, to the full, and you want that grace to be not in vain, that means you would be a hard worker. Faithful Christians who understand the sovereignty of God and the grace of God are hard workers. Christians should work hard to see the gospel spread. Christians should be known at work as hard workers. Christians should be known by our teachers as hard workers. Uh, Christians who play sports should be known as hard workers. And as a church, we need to be thoughtful about the spread of the gospel locally and globally. And we we should think, strategize, uh, have think tanks, whatever it takes. We we need to be shrewd about this. In in Luke 16, Jesus tells this parable, and it's a weird parable. It's weird because uh, there's this guy who's a dishonest manager, and he's kind of the hero of the story. Basically, the way it goes is this manager knew that he was about to be fired. And so he realized that uh, he needed to go and, and make friends with people that they'd been doing business with. So he went to these people they'd done business with. And he basically said something to the effect of, hey, cut your bill in half and, and, and we'll, we'll consider it settled. And so he went and did all this and this way. So when he got fired, he would be welcomed back in. Uh, Jesus said, said this about it. He said, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And he said this for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And so Jesus was commending this person with the idea that that the the people of the light, the the, the children of God, they're not shrewd. They they, they aren't as, as thoughtful as people of the world are. And they should be more like that. Christians, As Christians, we should be shrewd in the advancement of the gospel, the conversion of unbelievers. And we should think about it often and we should think about it strategically. And, and, and God doesn't need us to do this, not at all. But God, in his sovereignty, chooses to use means. And it delights God to use fools like me and like you to do much good in the world. So may God help us to be devoted followers of Jesus, taking pains to obey the word of God as Joshua continually did and to repent from any sin as they did when they found sin in the camp with Achan so that we might find more blessings than weeds in our life. And may we work really hard knowing that God is at work doing great things through regular people like you and like me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have many pictures in the scripture um, and in our own lives of unfaithfulness, of loving sin, uh, of being led astray uh, by small things, big things, subtle things, um, and uh, obvious things. And would you help us to see that you are a good and kind and merciful God, and that when we, are, um, when we think there's a better life to be had outside of you, uh, that we are not seeing things clearly, that we are bringing harm into our own lives. So would you help us to see you as good, your word as good? Would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to be hard workers who trust you fully for the results of what you are doing in our lives and in the world. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.